6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 60 through 62. There is a score to settle of thousands of years of the abuse of the Creator, of God the Father, of, of, of His holy name. That's going to all get settled. That's all going to be put right. It's God's mercy that has forestalled His wrath, but not forever. And the day will come that the mission that is still in front of Yeshua HaMashiach is a wild set of commitments. They are detailed for us in a period of time called the Day of the Lord in Joel and Jeremiah and all the way through the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. And that's what the book of Isaiah is starting to move into. But before we leave Luke 4, since we started with this, I'd like to just dig into it a little bit further. We're down to verse 21. He said, He began to say to them, This day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. He said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you the truth, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only unto Zarephath, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, Jesus, in this little sermonette, takes two examples out of the Old Testament. And there are some aspects to them that are quite interesting. But the point is, we read that and say, okay, fine, what's that got to do with anything? You know, okay, so there's, there's, there, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but only one was healed by Elijah, taken care of, right? There were many lepers in Israel during Elisha, Elijah's successor, right? The only one healed was Naaman. Now, you and I read that and sort of shrug. We're Gentiles. We're not following the message. But you know what's neat? The Holy Spirit makes sure that we get... He, he has a form of exclamation point when we miss it because of our lack of Jewish background. He highlights something. He says, verse 28 says, And all they that in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. In other words, this little couple of examples got them so angry that they tried to throw him off a cliff. 
Now, if you've been to Nazareth, you know it's on a hillside. It's very steep, and and you can easily visualize any of several places where this might have taken place. Where because it is, you know, it's a hillside type situation. But they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They're gonna throw him off a cliff. What for? What got them so upset? Which causes us to go back and say, let's examine more carefully, especially from a Jewish perspective, what had he said here? I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and when great famine was throughout all the land. One small point, I'm very fascinated. We all know from reading uh, the book of Kings that Elijah ceased the drought. What's not clear from the text, I don't believe, is that it was also he that closed it up in the first place. But what's interesting, you will not find the duration in the Old Testament, that it was three and a half years, but twice in the New, here by Jesus Christ and later by James, they both mention that the heavens were shut up by Elijah for how long? Three and a half years. And I personally believe that that's there to highlight Revelation 11. I believe that that demonstrates that that's one of the two witnesses because that's one of the unique powers of the two witnesses. And for how long does the two witnesses have that power? For three and a half years. So Jesus highlights, the Holy Spirit's tucked this in here, incidental to the passage, to help us when we get to Revelation 11. But the main point is, it says, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up with, the, uh, with three years and six months, when the great famine was throughout the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only to Zarephath, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. If you're Jewish, the thing that catches your attention, that's a Gentile widow. She's in Sidon, not in Israel. She's a Gentile. Wait a minute. There are many widows in Israel, but the only one that's healed is a Gentile by Elijah? That doesn't sit very well. See, Israel was called to be a light unto the world. Instead, they got to a mentality, they disdained Gentiles, and even many of them for a long time held the view that a Gentile couldn't even be saved. That was not God's intention. Verse 27, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, Elisha being the successor to Elijah. Many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elijah, the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the what? The Syrian. What Jesus is in effect preaching here is the doctrine of sovereign election. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And the point Jesus is making, that even in the Old Testament... God can choose whom he will, and he picked two examples where the only one, not only was a Gentile saved, it was the only one saved. You follow me? That's why they got upset, because this violated their whole concept that we're God's chosen people and we're privileged and the Gentiles are dogs, dirt, whatever. So it's an aside. So Luke is giving us a lot of interesting insights, but I guess we should pop back to Isaiah 61. Yeah, we are. In case you hadn't noticed, we are studying Isaiah Chapter 61. Day of vengeance of our God. That comma in verse 2 of 61 separates the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. To cover all those that mourn, to appoint those to those uh, who mourn, to Zion, in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, oil for uh, of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called... Trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So now we're going to shift. Isaiah is going to springboard from this to just highlight the kingdom blessings. They shall build the old uh, wastes and they shall raise up 
the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Now you can argue that some of that's happening now, but not really. The scope of this passage is far greater than that. I believe it's really referring to the kingdom period. And foreigners shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the nations, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double. And for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. In other words, they're going to get compensation for some of the problems they've got. For I, the Lord, love justice and hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Which I assume is an echo of Jeremiah 31 and and the, the, the everlasting covenant. Their seed shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the blessed seed whom the Lord hath blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Interesting idioms. The bridegroom and the bride. That sound like Revelation? Sure. But where's it drawn from? All through the Scripture, but certainly from here. And again, we've got this idea of being clothed with the garments of salvation. Where Isaiah, in the next chapter, a few chapters, is going to indulge in more idioms having to do with being clothed with righteousness. What's our righteousness versus his righteousness? Again, it's always the idiom's always garments, and we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. Whose righteousness? His, not mine. Praise God. I don't want justice. I want his mercy. I don't want my righteousness. I want his. As a bridegroom decketh herself with her ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's the end of chapter 61. Now, chapter 62 picks up the uh, last... um, half a dozen verses of chapter 61 which deals with Israel's kingdom age but chapter 62 points out that there's going to be unrest divine unrest until the time comes for the kingdom to be established Uh, chapter 60 for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness go forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burneth And the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now one of the things that I'll leave it to you to sort of play with if you're inclined to this kind of weird stuff is to take these last chapters of Isaiah, we're getting near the end here, and notice how often and how many ways we find the word name emphasized. God talks about his name. And you know, you and I take uh, names sort of for granted. They're labels. They're labels of convenience. You and I generally don't attribute a lot of profound insight to a name. A name's a handle. It's a way of connecting, you know. God is not like that. It's interesting that in the Bible, names are very important. 
in Exodus uh, 3 and in Psalm 25, Matthew 23, John 17, again and again we find God takes his name very seriously. He embodies it in the Ten Commandments, right? He takes his name very seriously. His name is an object of praise in Hebrews 13, 15, Revelation 15, several places. It's interesting, too, that God takes the trouble to assign names. Whether it's Isaac or whether it's Jesus or whether, you know, whatever, or John the Baptist, he assigned those names. It's interesting that God chooses on several occasions to change the names from Abraham to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, from Simon to Peter, from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. So from this, we can begin to understand that God doesn't take these things casually. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that there's nothing trivial in the Scripture, but among the things that are on the highest ground in God's agenda are names. Now, by the way, God is pretty skilled at naming things. The Scripture tells us that he has named all the stars. Now, if you have done any background in astronomy, that's a mind-blower. Let's take just one galaxy, ours. We call it the part that we can see in a peculiar way. We call it the Milky Way, but that's just the stars that are in our galaxy, huh? There's about 100,000 million stars. You say, what's that guy? That's a big number. Yes, it is a big number, because if you named them one per second, it would take you 2,500 years to name them all. <laughs> I wouldn't bother starting. God's already done it for you. you know? And that's just one galaxy. There are, apparently, billions of galaxies. God, the Bible says he names all the stars. One of the things we probably have the toughest time with is to understand what, what an engineer would call the bandwidth of God. But we need to understand that that God can, can spend what would seem to us like full time with each of us. He's interested in everything you do. He loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off you. Now, some of you, that makes it a little uncomfortable. Isn't it? <laughs> the bandwidth of God. If you've studied DNA and cell division and mitosis and biology, you can quickly discover the laws of entropy imply that external input is required for every cell division. From a fertilized zygote unto an infinite. You have one cell, right? It starts, then it splits to two, then four, then eight, right? And they're all identical. And yet, suddenly they're not identical. They start specializing. Some cells become bone, some brain, some cortical tissue, you know, all different kinds of tissue. Those tissues become organs. Who's orchestrating that? Putting all the information in the DNA doesn't solve the, the uh, conflict resolution problem, to use the idiom of the system engineer. Someone's got to be orchestrating that from the outside. See, the, the analogy is if every one of us could play all instruments of an orchestra, and I gave each of you a complete orchestration for all instruments of the whole orchestra, you each had a copy, would we have a symphony? No, you need someone to conduct. That's what in the computer field is called conflict resolution. Someone's going to decide. You're going to be bone, you're going to be eye, you're going to be lung. You with me? Someone's got to call that shot. Someone's got to be boss. The boss comes from the outside. I believe God is involved with every cell division. We can't grasp that. We can't, we can't, uh, can't, anyway, I'm off the side. Did I get off the subject again? 
That happened before, I think, back in 82, didn't it, Don? <laughs> Verse 3. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed. There's that word name again, in effect, in a slightly different form. Forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hetzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Now the word Hetzibah, that was the, apparently the name of the wife of Hezekiah, and also may have been the name of, the, of a daughter of Isaiah, incidentally. But the word simply means, my desire, my delight is in thee. And the land Beulah, the word Beulah means married. See, thou call thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Now, if you fellows want something to take home with you tonight, the word Beulah as a verb also means to lord over. So you can work that out with your friends on the way home. <laughs> for as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Interesting. Who's the bridegroom? God is. Who's the bride? His people. You see? There again, this idiom, it, it, all the way, it starts, God uses the marriage from day one, from Adam and Eve, all the way through the scripture, to communicate the relationship between him and his people. The supernatural basis of marriage, a whole specialized study I encourage you to get into. God chooses to communicate his deepest truths through the idiom of the marriage. Ruth and Boaz is an example, but it's all through the scripture. And, of course, climaxing in what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. See, it's not the issue I'm dealing with. It's the idiom. You see, do you see how the Holy Spirit has communicated from end to end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22? It's all designed. Yes, there's different penmen. Yes, there's different styles of expression. And yet, it's supernaturally engineered to have integrity of design, not just in theme or concept, even in the idioms. Every number, every place name, every detail, by design. I have set watchmen upon thy walls of Jerusalem, who shall never hold their peace day or night. Ye, sh ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. Give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Now who could that be? Jesus Christ. You got it. You betcha. He has sworn by his right hand. It's interesting. He swears by himself in Genesis 22 and 45, Jeremiah 49, 51, Amos 6. He swears by himself a number of cases. He swears by his holiness in Psalm 89, Amos 4. He swears by the excellency of Jacob in Amos 8 and so forth. Here is the only place that I know of where he, swore, he, he has sworn by his right hand. <laughs> but that's like saying by myself have I sworn, isn't it? And by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no more give thy grain to be food for thine enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink thy wine for which thou hast labored. Now this may not mean a lot to you and I, but you have to look at the curse that God, that, that Moses foresaw that would come upon Israel, where they would labor and another would eat the fruit. Or the fruit. And if you get into Deuteronomy 28 and all that, all through that area, you'll find the idioms of the curse is that they would labor, but another would enjoy. And what this is saying is that curse is lifted. It's, it's the reversal 
of those things which Moses prophesied over the nation of Israel, which they have had to endure for, what, 19 centuries or more. But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the peoples. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the earth. Say ye unto the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Of course, that sounds like Handel. It also is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 40, which we covered before, and so on. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be forsaken, sought out a city not forsaken. And that's a good place to end for lots of reasons. But one of the things to be sensitive to is this whole business of names. God puts names very important. What name is more important to him than anything? His name. But there's one thing that God puts even above his name. His word. And one of the dramatic secrets, if you want to call it that, of Calvary Chapel. One of the reasons I believe that God has blessed it so abundantly in these several decades is because among the doctrines or orientation or emphasis or priorities, whatever you want to call it, of Calvary, is they put above everything else the teaching of God's Word. They let nothing preempt that. They let nothing, they try to let nothing interfere with that. They put that number one on the, there's three rules in Calvary Chapel. One is that they put the teaching of the word above everything else. The second rule is they put a high emphasis on worship, inspirational singing. And the third rule is that there are no other rules. That's really what Chuck has laid out and God has chosen to bless it abundantly. Praise God. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. The book of Isaiah. We've set the stage for uh, next time for Isaiah chapter 63. Those of you who want to read ahead, read Isaiah 63 and ask yourself that this blood-stained warrior has whose blood on his garments. In Revelation 19, you find him riding horseback. And his, he's, his vesture is dipped in blood. Whose blood? And Isaiah 63 deals with that. We'll talk about next time. Not only that... But why is Jesus Christ's second coming in Basra, in Edom? I thought he was coming to the Mount of Olives. What's going on here? We'll talk about the fact that there probably is no battle of Armageddon. That's a staging area. As the nations come against where? Against Jerusalem. Well, if they're coming against Jerusalem, what are they doing in Basra? What is Satan's maneuver? What's happening? We'll discover that there is a prerequisite condition to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture. Don't Jesus, back, Jesus comes back twice. Once for the church, once for Israel. But there is a prerequisite condition. We'll discover. The second coming of Jesus Christ. A very surprising passage to maybe to most of you in Hosea 5. We'll talk about that next time. More to the point for you and I, because all of that's yet future. There's some things right on the horizon we talked about that earlier. We watch Russia and Ezekiel 38 ready to happen. We watch Babylon emerging. We watch Jerusalem starting to plan to build a temple. We watch Europe emerging as a super state. We watch a world government, a movement in formation. 
All of these things set in stage, in place. They're moving to accomplish the 70th week at Daniel, the most documented period of time in the Bible. It's all getting ready on the horizon to happen. 70th week of Daniel is God's dealing with Israel. I believe he deals with Israel and the church mutually exclusively. Church is out of here before the 70th week of Daniel. How much sooner? 70th week of Daniel is defined by the enforcement of a treaty by a coming world leader. This world leader can't enforce that treaty until he's in power. He can't be in power until he appears publicly. There's an interval of time between the time he appears publicly and he's in, in a position to enforce that treaty. That interval could be one day. It could be 30 years. We don't know. But we do know from Second Thessalonians 2 that he cannot appear until we're out of here. And the analogy I love to think about, you're driving down the street, and you notice that all the stores are decorating for Christmas, so you know Thanksgiving must be near at hand. <laughs> and the question, my friends, are what are you going to do about it? Are you in Christ? Are you really confident of your position in Jesus Christ? Because if you're not, come see me afterwards. But most of us, I think, in this room, the fact that you would endure this nonsense every Wednesday evening means that you obviously have some interest in the Bible. You've already made that commitment, at least at some level. Praise God. It's to you that I challenge you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to start taking the Bible seriously? Are these things going to alter the priorities in your life? If you've always wanted to do some heroic commitment for God, boy, now's the time. Pray about it. Don't put it off. Now's the time to take him seriously. Now's the time to give him the opportunity to take over your life. Let him clean. You can't clean up. Let him clean it up. Let him give you the guidance. Let him allow you the opportunity to participate. He's got a role for you. In all this that's going on, you have an opportunity to be a participant in some way. He has a plan for you. You can be part of the action. You can be a spectator. You can be a spectator and be saved, I suspect. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying you also have a chance to be in the game. Praise God. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.